Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to welcome you all on behalf of LSE's Austrian Society to today's lecture on crisis in EU and Eurozone, Austria's response. When a few Austrian students initiated a lecture series called Global Business and Politics from an Austrian Perspective about a year ago, they had in mind to frequently invite renowned public figures from Austria to speak here at LSE and shed light on current political and economic issues. We are therefore delighted to welcome one of the most influential politicians from our country who is going to talk about the most pressing matter that Europe is presently grappling with. We would like to thank LSE in general and the European Foreign Policy Unit of the International Relations Department in particular for their support in making this event happen. Moreover, we thank the Austrian Embassy to the UK who are generously sponsoring the reception that will take place right afterwards on the 8th floor of this building. But above all, our gratitude goes to Vice-Chancellor Dr. Michael Spindlecker, who has kindly agreed to give his speech today in spite of his very busy schedule. I would now like to hand over to Professor Vajanos from the LSE Department of Finance, who is chairing today's talk and is now going to introduce our guest speaker. Okay, so, um, Vice-Chancellor, distinguished guests, uh, students, members of the press, and uh, friends of the LSE, my name is uh, Professor Dimitri Vajanos, and it is an honor to be here today to welcome you all to the LSE campus and um, chair this afternoon's lecture. Today's event is hosted by the LSESU Austrian Society and LSE European Foreign Policy Unit and is part of the Global Business and Politics from an Austrian Perspective lecture series. It is a great pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Spindlager to the LSE this afternoon. He's the Vice Chancellor and Federal Minister for European and International Affairs of the Republic of Austria. His speech here this afternoon could not be more timely given the continued financial turbulence facing Euro Europe's economy. For those Okay, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is uh, LSE Europe. Uh, as usual, there will be the chance for you to put questions to the Vice-Chancellor after the lecture. Uh, but for now, please join me in welcoming Vice-Chancellor Spindlegger to the LSE to deliver his lecture entitled Crisis in the EU and Eurozone, Austria's Response. Thank you very much, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues, I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to address friends of the London School of Economics and friends of the Austrian society here today. It is really a great honor for me to speak at this university, one of the leading academic institutions in the United Kingdom and in the world. The LSE is always ranked under the top universities worldwide. This shows the dedication of its students, professors and management. Before coming here, I had a look to the statistics. 9,000 students from over 140 countries speaking 100 different languages, a real microcosmos of London and the world. No wonder that this university has not only produced heads of state and government, but it can also look back to an impressive list 
of Nobel Prize winners. And I'm sure that many names will follow. I hope uh, we have an audience today where you will have a Nobel Prize in the future. One of the distinguished winners of the Nobel Prize and lecturer and professor at the LSE was the Austrian Friedrich von Hayek. He won the Nobel Prize in 1974 in economic sciences together with Gunnar Myrdal from Sweden. Hayek is an important representative of the so-called Austrian school of political economy. His work gives us a better understanding of economic and financial systems, about causes of crisis and about possible solutions. During the recent and still ongoing financial and economic crisis, the thinking of men like Hayek plays an important role in discussions and debates of how to solve the current difficulties and problems and how to build a more sustainable model of economic development. We can draw important lessons for today's challenges from that. This leads me to the topic of my lecture, the crisis in the European Union and the Eurozone and Austria's response. How has my country dealt with the crisis so far? The most recent report of the International Monetary Fund of 6th of September concludes that Austria has dealt with the crisis quite well and the recovery is on firm grounds. With a rebound in external demand and sound fundamentals, the Austrian economy recovered rapidly from the 2009 recession. Private consumption and employment held up well during the downturn. When external demand, especially from Germany, picked up, the stage was set for a swift recovery. GDP growth reached 2.1% in 2010, with a marked acceleration in the second half of the year. Strong growth performance is estimated to continue in 2011, but prospects for 2012 have dimmed. At only slightly over 4%, unemployment is among the lowest in Europe. The current account registered a surplus of 2.7% of GDP in 2010, reflecting the competitiveness of the economy, especially in the services sector. So everything is all right? Not entirely. The fiscal deficit widened from 0.9% in 2007 to 4.6% of GDP in 2010. However, the economic recovery and the combination of tax increases and expenditure cuts will bring the deficit down to around 2% in the <coughs> medium term. But the main problem is the structural reform or the lack of it. IMF, OECD and the European Commission criticize a lack of ambition and recommend improvements in three main areas. Early retirement, healthcare and subsidies. Let me first talk about early retirement. The employment rate of all the workers in Austria is still well below the EU average. 
Altogether, 72% of all new pensions in 2010 were granted before the statutory retirement age 65 in Austria was reached. This poses a heavy burden on those who continue to work. Additional pension costs will be very high from 2020 onwards when the baby boom generation retires. Another cost driver of the current systems in the existence of separate pension schemes for civil servants at state and uh, municipal level. While at the central government level, pensions of civil servants are by now fully harmonized with the private sector, similar reforms at the state level are still not yet there. Let us now have a closer look to the healthcare system. Austria dedicates very large public resources to health and the share of total health spending in GDP is among the highest in the OECD. 16% of total general government spending is for health. However, maintaining the high level and quality of public health care will be a major challenge in the future when a still higher share of older people increases demand for health care services. Hospital planning must be carried out on a nationwide scale to optimize size, degree of specialization and distribution of hospitals across Austria's territory. And about subsidies, Austria spends around 6% of GDP on subsidies and capital transfers about 3.5% more than the euro area average. More than a third of it is dispersed to Austrian railways. A comparison with the Swiss railways suggests that there is scope for rationalization in the operational business. With respect to pensions, the low average effective retirement age of Austrian railway employees, which is about 54, indicates potential savings from utilization of older workers, for example by transferring them to other posts coupled with necessary retraining. This would be better than sending them into early retirement. The government has taken initiative to create a transparency data bank to improve the situation with regard to subsidies. If successful, this initiative could be the first step to a comprehensive stock-taking and evaluation of all programs and for setting clear priorities in the future. In view of the fragile global outlook and the vulnerabilities in the euro area, my general conclusion is the following. Important challenges remain. Reducing the debt burden and enhancing structural reforms must top the policy agenda for the period ahead. Let us now have a look at the Euro Summit of 26th of October 2011. Were the decisions adequate to the seriousness of the situation? Generally, member states are required to strictly observe fiscal stability. 
The compliance with the rules and regulations will be increasingly monitored in the months to come. Member States will be required to engage in measures aimed at stability and growth. This is of a particular importance for Spain and Italy. Spain has already implemented far-reaching measures, especially in the banking sector. Italy has so far only undertaken isolated measures with a temporary nature, as can be seen in the draft budget for 2012. Indeed, The Italian government has decided upon a comprehensive reform package just before the Euro summit. The package will be subject to discussions with EU partners. Without the clear picture of the binding nature and the timetable of implementation, investors will not be ready to start buying sovereign bonds again. The fact that as an outcome of the recent G20 summit in Cannes, the IMF is called upon monitoring the implementation of the reform measures that is really important. Let me now turn to Greece. The political situation in Greece permitting the country will benefit from the disbursement of the thick tranche of the EU IMF support program. In order to ensure debt sustainability, a second support program this time using the EFSF, will be set up. It will include a private sector involvement, which is more sustainable, sustainable and substantial than that of 21st of July. In order to achieve a sustainable debt ratio of 120% of GNP, the so-called haircut has to be at the magnitude of 50%. The mechanisms for the monitoring of the implementation of the Greek program will be strengthened. The Euro Summit reaffirmed the Greek ownership of the program and that full implementation is the responsibility of the Greek authorities. As far as our general approach to private sector involvement in the Euro area is concerned, the Euro Summit reiterated that Greece requires an exceptional and unique solution. Are the measures agreed upon by the Euro Summit good enough? This is the crucial question. We have taken unprecedented steps to combat the effects of the worldwide financial crisis. I think it is fair to say that the measures agreed upon by the Euro Summit reflect our strong determination to do whatever is required to overcome the present difficulties and take the necessary steps for the completion of our economic and monetary union. This policy, however, can probably be maintained over a period of several years. <coughs> so what should come next? I think more needs to be done in order to supplement the monetary union with a fiscal union and eventually a truly political union. In other words, we need more Europe, not less. And this, if needed, through a treaty change. This would mean transferring important sovereign responsibilities and fiscal powers to the European level. 
saying that and being in London, I know uh, this is a strong message. <coughs> During the course of the last months, we have witnessed a number of valuable contributions to the ongoing discussion on strengthening economic convergence and fiscal discipline within the Euro member states. France and Germany proposed to strengthen further the governance of the Euro area in line with existing treaties. A Dutch proposal aimed at addressing the issue of budgetary discipline by establishing an independent EU budget authority to supervise budgetary discipline. The interim report to be presented by Hermann van Rompuy in December will be a further key document in discussing deeper integration steps within the Eurozone. Today, we find ourselves in a dramatic situation and it is clear that the future of the Euro is at stake. It is important to develop a long-term strategy. We are aware that treaty changes will not contribute to immediate problem solving. Nevertheless, we must develop a long-lasting plan which would allow us to act quicker and more decisively. In this case, I believe that the European Commission should have the leading role and we should follow the community method which has served us well in the past. It should not be replaced by an ad hoc mechanism where a very limited number of bigger member states decide on others beside. Austria has been traditionally a strong advocate of the community method in which the European Commission plays a central role in initiating legislative procedures and also in taking member states to court for failing to implement decisions. We therefore noted with caution the intergovernmental approach of certain member states whose views might differ when it comes to discussing a common solution to overcome the crisis. As a matter of fact, only the Commission will be able to act beyond the immediate interests of individual member states. We believe that the European Parliament as an elect elected body should be fully involved in the legislative process. It goes without saying that this also means that competencies are transferred to the community level. Through the Lisbon Treaty, we have made a considerable step forward when it comes to better and faster decision-making through more qualified majority voting. I think we should not shy away from using the full potential of this treaty and even go a step farther if necessary. The Lisbon Treaty amended the founding treaties of the Union. It also altered the rules on decision-making in the Union. The treaty has expanded the use of qualified majority voting in the Council and has made decision-making faster and more efficient. The Treaty of Lisbon has strengthened the role of the European Parliament and national parliaments and has created new opportunities for citizens to have their voices heard. The European Parliament is provided with broader powers regarding EU legislation.
we need to continue our efforts to allow EU decision-making processes as efficient and transparent as possible. Such a step could include streamlining some of our institutions where we could go away from the principle that each member state must be represented in every institution, for example the Commission or the Court of Audit. I believe that the lessons learned from the crisis, from the crisis should trigger the desire for more sound integration, more confidence and more joint ambitions and that this will bring about the readiness to deviate from the principle of equal representation of EU member states in all institutions at all times. But I underline, first we have to make sure that confidence and trust in the European Union, its institutions and its member states is there. We have to work actively on that. We have to make sure that we do not lose the peoples of Europe along the way. Therefore, we should strengthen direct democracy in the European Union through practicing petitions for a referendum at the European level. The Treaty of Lisbon lays down the principle that the institutions shall maintain an open, transparent and regular dialogue with civil society. Dialogue with and participation of the public on European issues is not only politically recommended, but constitutes a citizen's right, which is still to be implemented to its full extent, amongst others, by the new instrument of a citizen initiative. The governments of the EU member states will have to make sure that the legal framework for launching a citizen's initiative will be implemented soon. This will enhance democracy and increase legitimacy in the functioning of the Union. In all of this, what about enlargement? The economic crisis in Europe has led to a certain enlargement fatigue. Enlargement is not popular among our populations, neither in Austria nor in all the member states. But we should not forget that the unification of our continent is not yet completed. The integration of the Western Balkans into the European Union is not only a firm commitment of all of our countries, it is also in our own self-interest. We will not have stability and security ourselves as long as Southeast Europe does not reform the way we want it to do. Development in our direct neighborhood will enhance all of our economic opportunities as well. The best tool we have at our hand is enlargement with strict conditionality. We need and expect well-prepared candidate countries. And the criteria are admittedly getting firmer. But they should serve the purpose and not to be used to build up hurtless, in effect impossible to overcome. We should also explicit the competition aspect more. The regatta principle should be strictly applied. Progress should be purely merits-based. For us, living in the European Union, 
and experiencing its weaknesses, it is often surprising how big the appeal to become an EU member still is. Nevertheless, from an Austrian point of view, we should not overburden our populations, but apply a step-by-step -step approach. Let's finish our job in the Western Balkans first and bind other aspirant countries with tailor-made agreements to the European Union. Not giving any false hopes or promises we are not able to keep in the future. And what about the European Union common foreign policy? I'm convinced that in the foreign policy field we need also more Europe and not less. We have to speak with one voice. 27 member states all having a different opinion can only lead to our disadvantage. As a result, we will not be taken seriously, none of us. This will weaken us all. More coherence is thus in all of our interest. None of the EU member states, not even the biggest, has the weight in the international arena to realize its interests by itself. Those who do not believe this are either living in a romanticized past or are closing their eyes towards the realities of an even more globalized world. Splitting up our individual potential only makes us weak. If we, Europe, if we Europeans want to play a role in the future, we have to act united. Unfortunately, the European Union has presented itself very poorly recently. Let's take the example of the Palestinian membership requests in UNESCO. Austria always maintained the primacy of a common position. Until the very end and decided only to take position once it was clear that consensus was no longer an option. Certain member states have early and unfortunately publicly taken position in one or in the other direction and were then unwilling to compromise. Under these circumstances it was impossible for the High Representative to broker a common position. This is not a question of the treaties but simply of political will. The same holds true for undermining the possibilities for joint EU statements given by the High Representative. If we don't give her the tools, we will not be able to build anything common. The result is that Europe is marginalizing itself. We are not going to be taken seriously by our overseas partners. This can become very dangerous in future cases. Let's take the Iranian nuclear question. So far, with the combination of openness for a diplomatic solution manifested in the E3 and 3 negotiation track and a unified front in putting pressure on Iran through sanctions, Europe has presented itself as a serious actor. Just imagine if we were to fall into the trap of division here as well. 
Many think that building consensus among 27 is too difficult. I can only argue that creating a common policy does not only make us stronger, but also creates a sense of ownership of all member states. Therefore, I strongly warn of the wish of some to simplify procedures by favoring decision-making in special clubs. This policy is doomed to fail. Certain leadership is welcome, but without inclusion of all member states, including the medium and small, the implementation of this policy is put into question from the outset. Thank you very much for your attention. So uh, thank you very much for your speech, uh, your speech, uh, Vice Chancellor. It's extremely comprehensive, uh, such a positive and constructive outlook. Uh, let's hope that uh, Europe will overcome the crisis and strengthen in the ways you are suggesting. So uh, we now open the floor to questions. So um, there's a microphone, I think. Oh, no, there's no microphone. Okay, fine. We'll do more microphone. Okay, so then uh, um, just let us know. I will collect the first some questions by in small batches. So uh, everyone who has a question, they please let us know your name and affiliation. And uh, of course, please keep your question brief. Yeah. Hello, uh, writers, Admiral Horsman. Uh, there's talk about France and Germany, uh, German officials uh, talking about um, a smaller core, Eurozone, and the Eurozone breakaway. Can you confirm those talks have taken place? Can you speak up, please? Can you confirm the talks have taken place about a core Eurozone or a breakaway group, please? And if so, would Austria uh, be part of that, or would they oppose it? Okay, let me take two more questions, and then we give the Vice Chancellor the chance to apply. Yeah? Uh, Martin Schuh is my name, and I'm an LSE alumnus. I have a question about the issue that you've uh, briefly touched upon, namely the, the UNESCO vote in Paris. And I think you've justified your vote uh, by the argument that you want to give uh, the Palestinian access to the valuable work of UNESCO, I think, which is a very noble objective, we all agree. However, uh, given the particular history of Austria, period Mauthausen, may such a country really uh, vote in a way that potentially endangers Israel's security? Okay, one more question, and yeah? Um, my question would be, do you see a risk for democracy um, from the capital markets? Uh, the pressure of the uh, uh, economical forces on governments that we're seeing uh, with the announcement of the referendum in Greece which has been taken away by the markets mm -hmm. as an example okay I will start uh, with the first question I cannot confirm that there is really a plan uh, to have a new Eurozone and I think uh, I'm not very much amused about this idea because we have a Eurozone with 17 members and we have to stay together just to give the market a strong signal that we will overcome the problems and that we will not create new problems. And I think uh, Austria is uh, really in favor to keep this Eurozone as it is and we have uh, to do a lot to overcome the recent problems. But uh, have a look to uh, Portugal and Ireland, I think they are in the program and they are doing a very well job. If you have a look at uh, what uh, we have got from the expert level in response to their measures, I think this is uh, 
a real uh, reason to be optimistic for the future. We have now to convince Italy to do it in the same way, even if it is not uh, in the program, and we have to do it in the same way in Spain. But I see uh, also there a lot of measures have been taken, and I'm sure uh, that they will overcome the problems soon. Second question about UNESCO and uh, voting of Austria. I have always been very much in favor, also in the Council in Europe, of having a common position. And if you have a look what we have reached in uh, New York during General Assembly, it was really the right way to take both sides under pressure that they have to come again to the negotiation table. It was not possible in Geneva just uh, in Paris, excuse me, just to reach uh, a common position for the European Union. This is really a pity. So we had to decide at the end, uh, being in favor, being uh, against or abstaining in the vote. And uh, due to uh, our tradition in Austria, our links to Arab countries, and especially to Palestine, we have decided in Austria uh, to be in favor Palestine and also uh, being in favor in that case of UNESCO, just to give them the chance to take part in the programs of UNESCO in the future. It does not mean that we are in favor automatically giving them uh, a real status as a sovereign state. So this is a different question. Uh, we have to decide that uh, in the level of the United Nations, in the General Assembly, if they ask for that. But this is another procedure. I know this is, uh, of course, a decision we had to take, and it's uh, really a sensitive issue, but uh, I have been talking to our federal president, our chancellor, and we decided together to do this step uh, to be in favor of uh, membership of Palestine in UNESCO. Third, about uh, the risks for democracy, just uh, being against the referendum in Greece, as it was announced by Prime Minister Papandreou. I think uh, we have to differ. First of all, I'm very much in favor of having uh, democracy more than in the past. I think uh, this is the only way just to convince people that this Europe that we are building up is the right Europe for them. If you have a look uh, where the skepticism in different member countries, especially also in my country, uh, is founded. I think one of the main issues is that they don't know what this Europe is about today. There are so many different issues, but they are so difficult to explain that you don't see what is the real sense today. And I think one of the main issues for the future is to tell them this union, union, the future, should bring about uh, more pressure to others and we should be more concentrated to other countries, other continents in uh, this globalized world. And not only being focused on to internal problems. So I think uh, this is what we should do in the future and we should not uh, uh, have a look to the Greece example that was happening. Because um, if you have a, a deeper look what has happened in Greece, Prime Minister promised on Sunday that uh, he will be in favor of the measures uh, being taken by the European Council. And on Wednesday he told us in a letter that he will now hold a referendum. I think this is not serious. You have uh, to inform your partners timely what you are planning, because I don't think that uh, 
he had this plan on Monday night. He was, I think, uh, uh, thinking about the referendum before Sunday, before the European Council. So I think uh, this is a different issue, and we should not see that uh, in this case um, Europe has uh, uh, hindered uh, Greece to, to hold a referendum. Okay, yeah, first, yeah. Um, my name is Felix Lill of Austrian Daily Press. Austria is one of the um, six remaining AAA countries in the Eurozone. Um, but not for much longer, so, so some fear. Uh, what is Austria's response in fiscal terms to that, also with regard to Italy's problems, given the big exposure of Austrian banks in Italy and so on? So what is Austria doing what, and what, what is um, Austria doing specifically on the Italian case? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I referred to your question regarding the future of the, the Euro state or federal euro. Um, the problem is with the time and the horizon. If we take 20 years, I think it's unquestionable that Europe will be uh, a federal uh, state. It has to be it is completely global. The question I have is how, in the circumstances we have seen for the last 10 years, how the European Commission has been managing the Eurozone, how it has been mismanaging the budget and the auditing, how can we trust that it will take us through that very difficult period to a federal state where the citizens through the European Parliament will be able to at least indirectly input the decisions? Okay, yeah, so there was this question in the back. We'll be next time afterwards. Yeah. Uh, um, you, my name is Ben, uh, I'm a student here at the LSC. Um, you mentioned in your speech the, the notion of kind of, I suppose we could term it, fiscal federalization, more centralization of kind of control over monetary and fiscal um, um, policies through treaty change. But um, I was wondering, like, how realistic can we expect treaty change considering the fact that? I know in my own country we would definitely have to have a referendum and our Prime Minister is against us. In the UK you've got a rising Euro scepticism, there's a rising Euro scepticism in the likes of Finland. And also if there were attempts to make um, treaty change, would that not go against kind of the, the connection between the citizens and Europe? It would just be seen as a further elite project and kind of create a, a further disconnect uh, between the citizens and Europe. Oh well, yes, of course. <laughs> First of all, about AAA and Austria. Of course, we have to do everything to keep our AAA in Austria, and we will do everything, just also to convince uh, financial markets that we have truly this AAA in Austria. We will keep it. What to do? As I've announced uh, also in my speech, I think one of the main issues is to make uh, serious steps forward in reducing our debts. That's the main problem. We have to see, as all other countries around us, that with a debt rate of 74%, as we have it today, this is not uh, the end of the story. We have to reduce every year our debts, and we have uh, to do a lot of programs so that everybody can follow our strategy. We are now discussing in Austria to implement in our constitution that we will have uh, a level of 60% of debts uh, at the largest extent. And uh, of course, we will uh, soonly, I think, uh, present 
a common position from the government. Second is uh, to have all these measures uh, in the pension reform. Uh, I announced uh, that we have a lot of problems with an average of 58 today in Austria and I think of course we have to take a lot of steps forward so that we will have a, a pension age for people uh, more to that what uh, levels uh, are in the law 65 for men, 60 for women and of course uh, we have to do a lot of reforms in Austria also in the health sector, I announced that I think uh, we have a plan for the government together with our states we come together during next year to present a lot of reforms in that case so I think uh, these are convincing strategies also for the financial markets that Austria is uh, learning the lesson and that we are going to proceed uh, to have a lot of reforms for the future. Second about the uh, federal state of Europe. I'm not so convinced that we will really have a federal state. I think we have to learn out of this crisis our lessons. And the lesson is we have to um, get a more quick and immediate response to situations like we have seen it uh, during the last month. So I'm calling for more competencies for the Commission because I think uh, you have to get somebody in lead for taking measures. And if you have a look today, how many different institutions are dealing with the same case? Uh, central Bank, uh, the National Banks together with the Central Bank, uh, the ECOFIN, uh, European Council, Commission, I think this is one of the problems we have to see. So you should take somebody uh, with the lead and he has to coordinate with other institutions. I think we have a lack of competencies of the Commission today. So I'm convinced uh, this should be in the treaty one of the issues we should implement during the next years. I know uh, I think European Parliament having so many members, more than 700, and um, having um, a lot of procedures coming to a position, this is hard work, but there is no alternative for me, because uh, you need uh, more democracy in Europe just to convince people that this is uh, an institution that is uh, having uh, in mind interest of people. So I think uh, we have to involve European Parliament in every case, but uh, we have to differ between legislation and uh, immediate response to crisis situation as we have seen it during the last month. About uh, the treaty change and uh, realistic point of view, I think it's serious to say, and I said it in my speech, that the treaty change will not help to overcome the problems in this crisis. It will help uh, to overcome the problems in the next crisis. But uh, I think if you have a look to the history of the European Union, Every 10 years we had a huge uh, and big uh, treaty reform from Maastricht uh, to Treaty of Amsterdam to the Treaty of Lisbon. So I think uh, if we start now with uh, discussion about uh, treaty changes, you will have a new treaty maybe in 10 years. So we have to start now just to have a better, uh, better coordinated uh, structure for European Union in the future. And um, so I think um, we have to differ this also in, the, in our discussions today. 
we have to react now to the crisis situation with the instruments we have. We have a Treaty of Lisbon and we should use it. And we have uh, six-pack uh, regulation now, also uh, with the support of the European Parliament. And for the future, we have to start negotiations. This is always a uh, um, uh, huge process. We have to start in Europe, but there is no alternative. Just to get for the next 10 years another structure that is uh, more focused to the problems we will see in the future. Okay. So, um, running through a bit of time, let me take two more questions and then we stop. So, yes, this one and then you're on the back. Yeah, go ahead. Your name first. Uh, yes, my name is Max Rival. I'm an LLC alumni. I would like to pick up on what you said on the issue of enlargement. And you said correctly that uh, the potential membership of new countries is one of the greatest bargaining tools for internal reforms that we have. However, in the crisis uh, that uh, Europe has been going through in the least last years, this leverage, I would say for the West Balkans as well as Turkey, uh, has diminished. Um, so my question would be, what can be done that despite the crisis that Europe seems to be in at the moment, this leverage continues to uh, be able to exercise to promote internal reform of potential member countries. You know what, I think that we're slightly out of time. Maybe not take the second question, maybe we'll give enough time to the Vice Chancellor to take it. Because in the end, I this message. So if you Thank you very much. Uh, I think that's the most interesting question, of course. First of all, how to convince uh, potential member states for the future to do with such a lot of reforms in their countries and uh, not every time getting a real uh, response from Brussels that is going uh, to encourage them to do more uh, like we have it today in Serbia, you know about that uh, and on the other hand, how to convince people in the European Union we have today that enlargement is still a process we should continue for the first part, I would say there is a strong need now to give, especially Serbia, this uh, symbol that uh, we are seeing what they have done in the past and we should give them the candidate status in December. I'm very much in favor of that. I've just been talking to my colleague uh, here in London that we both uh, should be more active to reach this goal, because we know there is still uh, enlargement fatigue in the European Union. A lot of different member countries think we should concentrate more on the crisis situation, we should concentrate on internal affairs, and we should stop this enlargement process in general. So uh, I am not uh, of this opinion. I think uh, we, have, we have to continue, because we started this process, we promised they could come to the European Union and we should stay to that what we have promised in the past. And of course, uh, if they can see that some countries like Croatia have finished their negotiations and will become a member of the European Union very soon, I think this encourages them that uh, something is going forward. And we have done a lot in the past uh, with visa liberalization for the countries of the Western Balkans. They are very satisfied about that and I think we should continue in that way. The second is how to convince our people that uh, they are in favor of having new countries in the European Union. Because we all know 
if you have a look to Albania or Bosnia or Montenegro or Macedonia, all these countries uh, will not bring us really forward uh, with uh, a lot of growth rates and so on. So, of course, I think uh, we, we have also to ask for solidarity to our people. I think it's totally necessary to give them the chance because they see if they are joining the European Union, life will change for them. I think we have uh, to keep them and so I'm in my country um, very much in favor of this enlargement process. I'm talking about that every day when I'm out uh, in the area and I will do this also in the future and I hope I will have many colleagues in the European Union doing the same way. Uh, and I hope you will be in favor as well and uh, convince also your colleagues in those countries as well as at home that this is the right way for greater, better Europe in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, ladies and gentlemen, before I thank the Vice-Chancellor in a moment, I would like that you please remain in your seats to allow me to escort him out of the room. So, uh, well, it's been a great pleasure for, uh, for both me and I think for all of you too, to have the opportunity to listen to the Vice-Chancellor. This afternoon, such a positive outlook, let's hope that we're going to move in this very positive, uh, things are moving in this direction. And um, to, um, so, to, as a small token of appreciation, very small token, we have this beautiful LSC cap. <laughs> <laughs> We're most grateful that you could find time for, uh, for in your busy schedule to be with us this afternoon. And uh, we ask everyone to show their appreciation. Okay.